Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to be able to welcome Tammy Willis back on the show. First, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to be able to become a subscriber of the show to keep it going. Again, patreon.com slash indoctrination. Thank you. Truly, we could not do it without you. And there are a lot of people who want to be able to be on the show, and I want to be able to keep it as a forum for them to be able to tell their stories. So please help out in any way you can. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And now, Tammy Willis had been on our show before, but we had talked just briefly about the issue around the lack of separation in church and state. And I thought this week with the election, it would be a good idea to discuss this, to get into this very prickly kind of discussion. Tammy Willis grew up in Virginia in the 70s and 80s in a Christian fundamentalist church that she now knows was a cult in the way in which it operated, abused, and controlled its members. Her church, school, and family life was steeped in methods of control based on fear, abuse, dependency, coercion, obedience, and at all costs, guilt and shame. Although she's been away from fundamentalism for 30 years, she's still coming to terms with the way in which she was raised and how her life has been affected. Seeing what's happening in the United States political system and the rise of Christian nationalism, as she calls it, and a lot of other people call it, has been eye-opening and triggering. In the last few years, it's become clear to her that governmental power and influence is being used to promote specific religious views and violate the rights of other people. There's a clear connection between the ways in which religious groups use mind control and coercion and how members have been conditioned to have blind faith and how those people are now part of our political system. The constant onslaught of lies and gaslighting and the systemic invalidation of mainstream media are causing many people not to trust their own eyes and ears and to question the ways in which they know things about the world. These are the exact information control methods that people within fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and I'll say extremism, experience. She's speaking out because she wants people to understand the damaging cultic nature of certain religious groups that are all too often seen as benign in the United States. She believes we are in a cycle of manipulation and control in which politicians are using the ready willingness and belief of members of Christian religious groups who have already been conditioned to be manipulated to further their agendas. And I'm so happy to be able to have her back. I hope to be able to have her again. Here's Tammy Willis now. Welcome to the show, Tammy Willis. I reached out to you because one of the things that you had originally told me about when we were emailing before your last appearance on the show, and then also a little bit while we were talking, while we were taping our episode, was about the church and state separation, really the church and state non-separation, to be more exact. And, you know, you had mentioned 
in your group that Bob Dole and other people had come to speak. And I find that very interesting. There are some religious organizations that really do say, okay, we're not going to talk politics. And others say, we not only need to talk politics, but we need to have an impact and an influence on politics. And we need to somehow merge, whether we do it in an overt or a covert way, in our sermons, in our messaging. And so when we were just first talking just a few minutes ago, we were talking about what a crazy day it is today to be recording this. So when people hear it, it'll already be a week from now and it's going to be out, you know, out right after the election, which is also going to be a crazy day. So there's so much going on. So if you don't mind just taking a moment and reintroducing yourself to the listeners. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. And it's great to see you again. Uh, My name is Tammy Willis and I grew up in an ultra fundamentalist church in the 1970s and 80s. And the reason why I have been so interested in talking about that in the last five years is that I've been so triggered by the things that I've seen happening in society and in politics um, at large. And so as as for our first conversation, I, I kind of had been seeing some ties between the things that I experienced in ultra-fundamentalism in in that really crucial time in the 70s and 80s and what was happening now. And I started researching it. And what I found is that the things that I thought I had seen are actually things that have been happening and had been sort of planned for the last 40 or 50 years. And, And I really feel that now those things are sort of coming to fruition in ways that we're seeing every single day. Okay, so right. So let's talk about that. And we'll also talk about what happened yesterday. I just, I remember learning the Pledge of Allegiance when I was going to school. And I remember, you know, putting my hand over my heart and right in front of this American flag and then saying one nation under God. And I remember even when I was little thinking, uh, I didn't know quite why that didn't feel like it fit. Because it felt like here we're saluting something that has to do with country, not religion. But for our country, they seem to go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, the the idea of God started being printed on our money um, and in God we trust. And I thought that is just fascinating. And it was not always that way. No, it wasn't. Um, I did a little bit of a, a history timeline, actually, of that. If you do, you want me to share? Oh, yes, please. Okay. So, uh, in the fifties, when Eisenhower was president, is when we got "One Nation Under God" added to the Pledge of Allegiance. It had not been in there before from from when it was first created in the eighteen hundreds. The same thing with "In God We Trust" on our currency uh, was added under Eisenhower's administration in the fifties. And before that had not been something that we had seen on our currency at all. So that was kind of where, in my mind, sort of Christian nationalism has got its roots. They've kind of taken it from there. There was this period in the 60s and 70s, about 15-year period, where there was really kind of a Supreme Court crackdown, I guess you could say, on separation of church and state that we hadn't really seen before. Prayer in school was 
was ruled as unconstitutional during that time. Bible reading in school, in public schools, was ruled as unconstitutional during that time. We had in the 70s the Equal Rights Amendment, which came before the Supreme Court, which never passed, and then Roe versus Wade. And then in 1976, there was, I think, probably the thing that that really sort of pushed the separation of church and state debate into overdrive was a ruling that Christian or religious schools could not receive subsidies and tax exemptions. And I think that was the thing that really, because it's always about money, right? It always comes down to money in the end. But I think that was kind of what pushed the right-wing Christian movement in terms of mobilizing and making some decisions about how they wanted to move forward. So that was 1976. And then in 1979, the moral majority was formed. Um, And then, of course, all during that last 15 years, we were getting um, the rise to power of people like uh, Billy Graham and Pat Robertson was building his media empire during that time. Phyllis Schlafly, James Dobson, you know, so it's just sort of a who's who of the Christian right who all sort of came together and coalesced around this idea that the separation of church and state as they saw it was not constitutional. Okay, wow. So then when I was growing up, you know, so pretty much right after that, within the really fundamentalist Christian churches, we were seeing all of a sudden politicians coming to speak at churches and um, voter guides being handed out during Sunday services and sometimes even um, voter registration forms being given out in churches. Um, they were fundraising. And and this was just sort of small-scale fundraising, right? Because you're just talking about regular small church organizations. But then, you know, on the other end, they were fundraising in massive ways, you know, getting big donors, corporate donors, private donors that could, you know, donate millions of dollars to this cause. Mm-hmm. We could talk about all of those sorts of things. I I remember just going back to this idea of the moral majority. I remember so many people after a while who were Christian, who were saying, actually, they're not the majority and they're not moral. And whether or not they were talking about them individually, what they were saying is because they're calling themselves something that's not accurate. And it's already showing this kind of immorality that they're willing to just say anything and that they should be held to a certain kind of code of honor and truth. I also remember growing up seeing these bumper stickers that said, I found him or we found him, which was they found Jesus or they, you know, they brought him into their life as a savior. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't know who they're they're talking about. And then I went into a public school setting and there was a teacher who had that, there were posters all over the wall. And in one little corner, it had this sticker that said, you know, I found him or we found him. I can't remember if it's plural or singular. And I thought, how interesting here, this is a public school. And so he can display this in his classroom and it's okay. And that maybe he has the right to do that, but I wasn't quite clear because I thought it, it felt like there wasn't this safety net any longer. There wasn't this 
almost like a moat that you want between two things. You can cross the bridge if you want, but it shouldn't be that the bridge is taken down, the moat is filled in, and then there is just a merging of both sides. I know that something big happened yesterday. So maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that, how you think that came to be and the impact it had on you. Okay. So Amy Coney Barrett is our newest Supreme Court justice. And while I guess I always knew it was an inevitability, you know, I really, there was just no way that it wasn't going to happen. It still really really a blow, I think, just to me kind of watching it in slow motion and the way that that all of this has sort of come to pass. And if you and if you look at at how those dominoes have been set to fall and and it's just really especially coming from from a background of extreme Christian fundamentalism and seeing it and seeing and knowing what the ramifications of that are, it's pretty hard to take. But I mean, you know, what we're talking about here is Amy Coney Barrett is a Christian nationalist. She believes that America is a Christian nation. She believes that. Mm-hmm. She believes that the Constitution is not open to interpretation. She believes that the Bible is literal. She's an originalist. So she believes that the Constitution is not open to interpretation and that it was written by men who believed in the little literal interpretation of the Bible. So if you put all of that together, you end up with someone who has some very extreme views about the world and about how her brand of religion is able to be legislated. And now she has the power to actually do that. You know, I mean, we're talking about a group of people that doesn't think that separation of church and state is constitutional. And they really only want separation of church and state when it benefits them. So, you know, if it comes down to some legislation that allows them to um, impinge on someone else's civil rights because of their religious beliefs, then sure. But, you know, if it comes to churches and schools not getting tax subsidies or, you know, vouchers, that's a different story. So it's just, it's their brand of religion and, and that is the way forward for everyone. And they, and they really are, are going to be able to legislate that now. And it's, it's pretty devastating when you think of all, and it's not just about Roe versus Wade. It's about, you know, civil rights and marriage equality and our environment and, you know, healthcare, you know, socialized medicine and so many things, you know, uh, federal money for welfare and food assistance, all of the things that that these people want to be able to have control over that we're now sort of, you know, at their whim. I want to go back to the phrase you used about the domino effect, because these kinds of things like a new Supreme Court justice being sworn in in such a quick turnaround time as well. Yeah which was, I think, startling for a lot of people, that suddenly it was happening. I mean, there's been so much about what's happened in this world as of late that feels like a runaway train. It's very unsettling. And it adds, I think, to people's feelings of powerlessness 
not being able to sort of sit back, take in the information, synthesize it before it's already done. And especially with uh, a decision that is going to be lifelong, that, you know, we're going to be impacted by her in any way. We can't predict, but I think, you know, you're making some some spot on assumptions about how it's going to impact us. So as you see it, for this and other things where there is that sudden merging or the lack of separation of church and state, what is that domino effect? How does that play out? You know, it's really, I, I mean, we're sort of at a point where I don't really, it's so hard to predict what what the next thing might be. Um, I mean, if you just look at the history already in the, in the last four years of the Trump administration and what what they've been able to accomplish to kind of reach these goals and, you know, three Supreme Court justices who are, you know, extremely conservative, um, over 200 federal judiciary appointments and, and federal court and appellate court, you know. So, I mean, I think what it means is that we have to work that much harder for states' rights and and to make sure that things are happening at a state level so that it's not going to end up being decided by the Supreme Court. I I hate to be such a pessimist about it, but I, I almost feel like we've already sort of lost control of that in a way, just because we're at a point now where we have a, a, a far right-wing conservative majority in the Supreme Court for the next three or four decades. Right. So it's really, you know, and and I think a lot of people, I don't, it's so hard for me to know because I'm so steeped in it just because this is what I grew up with. And it, it it's been pinging my radar for so long right, yeah. that I, I think a lot of people it just, it, it just never really occurred to them that this is what was happening. And a lot of people kind of felt like, oh, you know, right when Christianity was a thing back in the 90s and, you know, that's not a thing anymore. Yeah. So I wanted just to say a couple of things about that. I agree with you. I think people didn't know what was going on. Part of the problem people are having now is that they're at such a saturation point and there's so many fires that, that are being set every day and also so many distractions. And while this is going on, that was going on while our attention was focused on this. And it's so much really a reflection, kind of a microcosm, I think, of how things are in the world where, you know, I think for my kids, they're on multiple social media simultaneously. Things are happening in every corner. And, you know, there's old news and it's because it happened five minutes ago. And so I think that because, you know, our government and other places will sort of throw shiny objects in one direction in the darkness, a lot happens that we don't know about that gets furthered and and pushed along. And we just are left feeling like there's no way, it's like herding cats, like there's no way can to keep control over all of this. I think also two other things. One is it's very hard if someone feels that they have been, let's say, mistreated by the government, and then they want to go to their pastor or someone to talk about that, but the pastor is aligned with the government, then you don't have an objective person, a safe person. And the converse as well, that there have been a number of people I know who, similar to you, had people from the government 
come into their churches or their cults and be donators, be guest speakers at their, you know, fundraisers where they were breaking ground for their next big building. And they had the governor there and whoever else. And so when they were feeling that they were being mistreated within the cult, they didn't think they had anywhere to go. They couldn't go to the government because they saw that they're aligned with each other. So where is that safe space? You lose your safe space. And uh, I think that that's really very troubling. And one other thing, and then I want you to be able to talk a lot more. <laughs> um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the past, but my mom uh, knew Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, it was before she was Ginsburg. When she, they met in college, they met at Cornell. She had been a cheerleader, I believe, in high school. And so she went by the name Kiki Bader. <laughs> so my mom knew Kiki Bader. She's full of surprises. And she said she was very studious, kind of quiet, you know, just very lovely, always very lovely and very even. And she wasn't surprised that she got as far as she did. It is hard for me, for my eye, to see a headline that says, Amy Coney Barrett takes on the role and this kind of the the space left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I feel like if Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wherever she is, she could see that headline. She, and in the language of our people, would be saying oy vey, but really capital O, capital Y. Oh, for sure. Knowing that there are people on the Supreme Court who will see the same words and the same document and see it very differently makes me think of different branches of religions and cults versus religions. You take the same scripture, the same doctrine, see it very differently. And so I wanted just to put that out to you too, because I know you've experienced that, the interpretations you were raised with and how people in the outside world interpret the exact same thing. So what do you make of that? Well, it's really, it's really troubling, you know, because when you're talking about these judiciary people who really believe in Christian nationalism and really believe in, you know, the intent of the founding fathers in a way that most people have not really thought about and what that really means, you know, I mean, they're sort of imbuing the, the founding fathers with their, with their same ideology in a way. I mean, and we really don't have any way to know that. And, and that's what, but this is what, this is what I grew up with. You know, I grew up with so many assumptions about, you know, religious dogma and, and the ways in which we interpret things, you know, biblical things. And, and I know what that looks like. And I know what it looks like in everyday life. And it's really, really troubling because we're talking about, you know, extreme patriarchy, sort of extreme separatism and, you know, us them mentality and uh you know kind of this ideology of of we have it worse than anyone else and we are being persecuted and we can't you know express our religious freedom so and so we're going to make everybody have our same religion you know and and so it's it's a lot to take i guess i just struggle with it because my take on it is it sometimes seems more extreme than 
people who didn't grow up in fundamentalism, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see it over and over again. And I, I just think it's going to be a hard road to kind of get back to rationalism at this point. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about rationalism, what is your sense of that? What would that look like? How would things be addressed or looked at or interpreted with rationalism? Well, I, I mean, I think you just have to start with a more egalitarian view of people in society, first mm-hmm. and foremost. And, you know, if you want to talk about, I mean, I'm not, I am not a Christian any longer, but I know what Christian values are supposed to be. If you want to talk about real Christian values of, you know, taking care of, of people who are less fortunate than you and being kind and giving people the benefit of the doubt and, you know, just just even putting politics aside, just sort of talking about getting rid of, of the divisiveness that we are have all sort of fallen into now um, and the, the real us-them mentality that we're seeing here, that's, you know, that's a first step. But then when, when you're talking about what happens in our lawmaking over the next few decades and, and how, that, how that is going to have such an impact on everyone in this country, everyone in this country, mm-hmm. it's hard to know what our path forward is going to be. Right. I think also, you know, going back to this egalitarian idea that that there is equality and, and more than that, there is the acknowledgement of sameness and that there is the acknowledgement that there are equal rights that need to be afforded to each person, equal roles, uh, equal power, equal voting power. and whether it is in your household or your church or any place that you pray and whether it is in government. So there's still, there's still a long way to go. I do have a hard time making sense of it in my mind when there are people who are the ones who have been kept out of being treated equal, who then participate in furthering that unequal effort. And I hope I'm wrong about how that's going to go. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, that someone, people have a track record and people have a history, but it always surprises me that the people who have suffered because of the lack of equality now have a position which furthers that and solidifies it. And applies it now and has the power to apply it to more people. And that is very bothersome. I think there's also something about, and I'd like to sort of go to talking about Trump and not because we're talking about politics per se, but I think we're talking about a personality, a personality that is hard to be against, is hard to fight against, you know, goes by their own timeline goes by their own very their very own philosophies and sometimes also is driven by something that isn't necessarily a good idea it's just it was their idea and so then it becomes the right idea and you want something to be thought out better than that and so how much do you think a personality like Trump's first of all how much does it remind you of the people you were raised with potentially 
But how much do you think that was a part of things becoming more like a runaway train in this moment? You know, I almost feel that it, it's hard. It, it's really hard for me to kind of pinpoint what what Trump was going on with him. You know, if he's, I mean, obviously he's just in it for the power and and he just wants to win at all costs. And, you know, there's some serious narcissism and, and personality disorder of some kind, I'm sure. But, um, you know, he's an authoritarian and now he has, you know, surrounded himself by people with people who are going to help him reach his goals. And it's, the, you know, it's a real give and take relationship because he's helping them reach their goals as well. And uh, it, it's hard to watch. It's really hard to watch because the, those people don't represent, I mean, even if you look at it in the terms of um, evangelicals who voted for Trump, they represent such a more tiny percentage of the population than the people who are not evangelicals that voted for Trump. Yet they're, you know, they're making the rules now. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in terms of the deals that have been made and how, you know, how this is all kind of coming together mm -hmm. you know I, I mean there are people that saw it coming I think and they were kind of sounding the alarm but we should all be paying attention to this now all of us should be paying attention to it because it we're reaching a, a real critical mass with it mm -hmm. and it's about consolidation of power for for a, a few different groups but if you look at who trump has surrounded himself with you know you've got bill barr and mike pompeo and betsy devos and ted cruz and all these other people who are very very steeped in right-wing christian ideology and that's where we are yeah, you know, the, there's this other piece that I was going to ask you about because a lot of people talk about this when they got involved in groups or were raised in groups that were cultic or fundamentalist um, without necessarily being called cult, although I'm sure there were a lot of similarities, that you felt that this was your community, this was your family, these were the people who understood you, these were the people who accepted you until they didn't, until you said no or until you left. And so these relationships were highly conditional, more so than they are in the world outside. And you don't know that at the time, and you don't know how devastating it's going to be when you find that out, that the religion or whatever it is, is going to take the place of your relationship. It's going to stand directly in between. And it it's going to be of the utmost importance, and you're going to be relegated to much less important place in people's lives. Um, uh, because you've made the wrong decision. And I think about people like that, you know, I think about Trump again, don't know if he, by the time people hear this, if he's still going to be in office or not. Um, but a lot of people will say, or had said, Trump is a friend to the fill in the blank. And I remember thinking to myself and a lot of people who were raised in fundamentalist groups thinking to themselves, yeah, he's a friend until he's not. Like until someone goes against him until, and you can see so many people within his cabinet and uh, so many people he was really there, you know, touting, he took them down and then they were arrested or they were shamed or they were kicked out and he moved on 
to other people, that there wasn't the sense of allegiance. There wasn't a real friendship. There wasn't that he's a friend to. He's not. It's a, it's a friendship of convenience. And then when it's not convenient anymore, you're gone. And so I was wondering about how it was for you growing up in, because you, you, again, have had this experience that is shared by many, that when people questioned or spoke out, what happened to them in the group that you were in? Uh, you know, it was, our group was, was extremely authoritarian, you know, to the point of, of being abusive. There was, it was top down. It was, you listen and you do as you're told and you believe what we tell you to believe. And there's no room for critical thought or questioning anything, you know, because there, there, there's punishment involved. If, if you start thinking for yourself or you start going away from whatever the rules are that they have set for you. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say, I mean, as far as Trump goes, he's, to me, he's so much more transactional than that, you know, like he's an authoritarian for sure, but everything to him is about what he he can get and how, you know, and that's how, I think that's how they made this whole thing work between him and the, and the extreme fundamentalist right-wing Christians you know, because they had a list of demands and it was, let's get some judges and let's get some Supreme Court justices. And can you do that for us? And they've been trying to do this with every president since, you know, Ronald Reagan. Um, But they've got it now. Like he, it's actually been done. So um, I think if you look at the track record and the people that, that have either walked away from Trump or been fired by him there are people that that eventually sort of snapped out of it and realized that their better human nature and and the decisions they were making were not right or that this person isn't doesn't have our best interests at heart and you know you don't see that happening with with you know i mean mike pence and and betsy devos and and these people who have sort of endured through the all of the insanity and all of the sort of other transactional relationships that are gone now so it's you know i think it's difficult to know where the next relationship is going to be and what that looks like because you know now we've got dr atlas i think is his name who who is sort of the next inner circle person within the, within the Trump organization. And you have to wonder, like, I, what is the transaction there? You know, where's, what is Dr. Atlas getting out of this? So I don't know, you know, it's, it's really, it's really difficult to, to parse it out for me because I can sometimes really see those transactions happening. And then other times it's kind of a mystery and, and it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Well, I think it is terrifying, especially when something is going to be in place now for many, many, many years because of forces that came together to make it happen. And I think there's so much that we're going to be healing from that is about decisions that were made for other reasons and not necessarily for the best of the country. And when you think of someone who's in a position of leadership, what you want, I think in, in a very childlike way, you want them to be this wonderful parent and you want them to care about you 
and do what's best for you and not just what's convenient or most advantageous for them. And so we've been hit a lot with that other parent who is the narcissistic parent who will will want to live in a house that's, let's say, fancier, but farther away from the school that you're used to going to where all your friends are. And so you have to change schools because your parent wants to be seen a certain way. You know, those kinds of decisions that leave their mark. And I feel like that's been our country now for a number of years. And we have not felt, I think, cared for. And, uh, and decisions have been made that don't make sense and decisions that we don't have the power to change. It's extremely frustrating. It is, and, and the sort of absolutes that, that come out of this regime, you know, about what is good and what is bad and how they are, they're always pitted at different ends of the spectrum to the point where everything is in black and white, even if it isn't, you know? Everything is an extreme and, you know, coming from religious fundamentalism and having everything be put in those terms all the time is just, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who also came from cultic groups who who are feeling this as well. You know, having that level of extremism in your day-to-day life is really exhausting. And and even for people who didn't grow up in, in cults or religious fundamentalism, it, it's exhausting because you we're not meant to think like that. Yeah, no, we're not. And I'm wondering, just as as we're we're finishing up with our time, was there something else that you wanted to be able to share? And also, because I was going to ask about when you said, you know, you're, we don't think like that. You know, how how can we go back into thinking other ways? And do we just need different leadership, or do we need to heal as like people who have left cults? We need to heal in the same ways. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, you know, I mean, but but the problem is I don't I don't know how you get everyone in in the country to kind of see it in those terms, but I think you're absolutely right. Like we're all going to have to kind of heal from this collective trauma almost in the same way that you would if you're coming out of coercive control group or a cult. And that's if we, you know, if we get granted a reprieve from it and not have to have this regime for another 4 years. But yeah, I mean, I guess my message, if I have a message, and I, and I know that this is going to be after the presidential election, but I think that I would want everyone to think about the ways in which they move through the world and assess candidates in elections so that you are really educating yourself on where these people came from, what their religious ideologies are and if it's something that fits with with your view of the world you know because it's not something that people I don't think necessarily think about but it's we're in a point in this country now where you have to really actually think about that quite a lot and like I said before it's about so much more than just Roe versus Wade you know it's about our climate and it's about our our civil rights and our human rights and our our freedom to be able to to move around in society and in a safe way and not you know there are people out there that that don't necessarily want everyone in the country to do that and we need to be aware of it mhm that's beautifully said 
I, I think also, you know, when people were talking, who, people who have left cults and also some who have left relationships with narcissists when they were noticing the unrest and the fighting in the streets and, and yeah, there was a reason for it and there was a good reason for it. And there was this boiling point and sometimes things need to be shaken up and people need to be able to have the freedom to express themselves at the same time. There are a lot of people who have been involved with cults who said this is the way it was, that the leader would have us turn on each other. And it was a gossip fest and it was putting people down. It was raising people up, knocking them down, setting up competition, praising people for certain things, uh, demoting people for other things, giving them a sense that they were less important than more important, and then taking away their power and then watching them react, but getting them wound up like a toy car like that you the one where you kind of push it backwards a couple of times to get it spring-loaded and then have it just and then let go of it have it go and then say I don't know why all these people are so out of control uh and so that there is this um drama that gets stirred up and then you have a parent coming in with the militia saying well we, we now you know have to treat you this way because you can't control yourselves you know, and and again, people in in cults said this is exactly how it was. Fights were started. We were fine without the leader. We would have been fine. We would have gotten along, but we were made to turn on each other. And then he needed to treat us like acting out children. And so I'm just wondering if that happened with you in your group, or if there are other kinds of cultic similarities that you saw playing out. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, everything, everything within our group was about black and white thinking and sort of fomenting distrust of, of everyone, you know, like we were sort of told that, that if you see someone else doing something wrong, you have to tell because if you don't, then you're just as wrong as they are, you know, so basically, you're just sort of set up into a scenario where you can't trust anyone around you. And, you know, you don't, you can't trust yourself because you've been told that the things that you think and believe are not true. So, you know, it's just, it's utter chaos. And I think seeing that happening in our country and then also seeing at the same time, the rise of groups that we know are cults, you know, QAnon and, and some of these gun rights groups and and white nationalist groups that we know are cults is just it I don't know it's it's hard to kind of be able to have a plan to move forward under those circumstances I think and I think maybe a lot of people are seeing those things and you don't know we don't we don't know what's going to happen even in the next week I guess so right right well I I thank you for your time today I think your 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 research on this, your awareness of this is something that's going to help you move through the next part of this, sort of understanding it conceptually, understanding it systemically. And it's also going to help the people who you speak to about it, understand the similarities, to have a framework to understand why people feel like something just happened to their heads and they're not sure and how did it start? And, you know, how, how did it end? Or how was it going to end? And how is it 
going to leave a long lasting impact and what to do about that. And so there are a lot of people in your life who are going to benefit from you sharing these things with them. And as you've healed from your experiences, we as a nation will probably need to utilize a lot of the skills and the insights that you needed to come to in order to heal yourself. So thank you. Thank you very much for your time and for being back on the show and wish us all luck. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much for asking me back and kind of letting me talk this out. Because honestly, having it in your head and being able to say it out loud and kind of be validated and legitimized is is huge. So hopefully this this helps somebody else as well. Absolutely. Because you're saying what a lot of people are saying or, or have been trying to say they don't have the words for it yet. So thank you for offering the words. And I'll talk to you soon. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Tammy for coming back on the show to talk about some of the issues when church and state get married, but from a lot of people's perspective, really need to get a divorce and maybe should have never been married to begin with. I know that for her, it's a very personal issue with people who were in government coming to speak at her church, people who gave her this sense that the two were one entity, church and state. That happens a lot with a lot of people from a lot of different religions and a lot of people who are in government who invoke the name of God or the word of God when they talk about law. There was recently a pastor who decided to make the announcement that God had told him that he should make a billion dollars with a B. And so he was going to ask all of his parishioners to help make God's dream for him a reality. So I can't help but wonder where someone like that gets their ideas, except that they just want a billion dollars. And when you add God into the mix, it's harder for people to say no. But I doubt that God really ever worked at a bank or that God, if God existed, really cared or cares about cash. I know there are things called prosperity principles and People use it as a way to try to line their own pockets or pastors use it as a way to line theirs. It's problematic when things are used as a way to help an individual, but the reason given is somehow that it's biblical. Somehow it's God's wish. Then it's much harder to say no. There was recently someone who uh, made a complaint against me to my board, and I got to see the limitations of our legal system close up, even though what I was dealing with was really nothing in comparison to what people deal with on a day-to-day basis, being incarcerated for no reason, being put away for years and years and years for minor infractions when others who are able to get high-priced attorneys, maybe see a day 
or a week in jail, or none at all. But I know that our legal system was able to be used as some sort of revenge by this woman who lodged a complaint against me. She is someone who said I did things to her as a therapist. I've never met her. And I was not able to prove my innocence. I had a lot of evidence to prove it because I'd never met this person and I'd never treated her. But for whatever reason or reasons, I was not able to move forward. And my whole defense team could not go to court. There's a lot to that story. And another time, I'm happy to talk to you about it. But it became kind of a, an issue of double, triple, quadruple negatives. It was that it's not that you are guilty. It's that you are not able to move forward because the court has said or your board or the California Attorney General's office has said, if you move forward, there could be a worse consequence against you if you lose. And we have the power to make that happen. So it would be best for you to think about not going to court to address the complaints and to not show what you have not done. Now, that doesn't feel like law to me. And that's where it gets all jumbled up. And the problem is that when you merge something that can be up for interpretation, misinterpretation, reinterpretation, or that people just don't feel like dealing with days in court around the holidays, which I think was part of the reason, that, that then, you know, they'll just say, you have to deal with this. And this is our legal ruling against you, even though it doesn't really have to do with law, because law should have to do with defending yourself and it has to do with facts and evidence, or at least I thought. So when you are dealing with this in combination with biblical passages, biblical interpretation, biblical misinterpretation, you then have an extra jumbled kind of system. You have one body, the legal system, the courts, state, interpreting things their own way at times, as we've seen through different people who are on the Supreme Court, who can look at the exact same words and see things in opposite ways, and merging with religion, which is very much known to be about interpretation and allegory and misinterpretation and done a lot because of different kinds of languages that have been used, that the Bible has been written in. I think about Michelangelo's depiction of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And on Moses's head are these two kind of points. And a lot of people saw them as horns. And it's hard to say it without it sounding funny, but because the Bible has been translated into different languages, 
there are typos. And the word Karen or Karen, Karnaim, it has the same root in Hebrew. And even though it's spelled slightly differently, but sounds similar, one of the words means rays of light, and the other means horns. So the New Testament, which was written in a language other than Hebrew, decided to go with the translation horns as opposed to rays of light, the light emanating from Moses, who had supposedly just met with God. And so this is kind of funny to think of the Bible having typos as it gets mistranslated. But I also know that the idea of Moses having horns suddenly was at the basis of so much anti-Semitism. This idea that Jewish people were not human, they were animals. And this was used to justify state-run and countrywide anti-Semitism and killing and termination and extermination, just like you would with someone who you don't see as fully human. And this is a huge problem. And it's a huge problem not only because of the danger, but because of how long these misinterpretations last. I remember being asked in college where my horns were. And if the bar and bat mitzvah ceremony was a ceremony to remove Jews' horns, this is from someone who was raised on a farm in the middle of my country. The problem with this, too, is that when you have an interpretation that can be offered to anyone who is a lawyer, who is on the Supreme Court, who's a priest, who is anyone who is a religious leader, they'll do what we call in our psychological lingo, they will fill in the blanks. When something is not a literal document or translation, people will fill in the blanks with the unknown pieces, with the parts that can be slightly changed and reinterpreted, with their biases, with their fears, with their xenophobia, with their sexism, with their homophobia. They will fill it in and have then a legal document, a code given to a country, an interpretation of the Bible that then is not about equality, but about subjugation, and is not about how we are the same, but about how we are different, and who is worthy of fair treatment, and who is worthy of rights, and who isn't. And so, as we move into a new phase in our world here in the United States after this election, it's a time for reflection. It's a time that we know is going to be filled with unrest and hurt feelings, relief on some side, anger on others, and anger also that's being stirred up. It's alarmingly easy to pull people down into a visceral relationship with their emotions, into their primal instincts. 
But in order for there to be a safe world, we need to move out of our amygdala, out of our survivalist, more primitive childlike brains and into the adult part of our brain. The part that's a little more quiet, the part that's not as much of a fighter. So it might not be as satisfying at first if you like the fight. The part that's not panic driven, the part that doesn't push us to be on the offense so we're not on the defense. But the part of our brains that actually takes us out of a more childlike state into an adult state, keeps our bodies calmer, opens up the part of our brain that is connected to reasoning and judgment, language, and logic, finding meaning rather than finding that kind of satisfaction of being right, finding a way to live together rather than just needing to think about how to survive. And I think we are all able at varying degrees to access that part of our brains. Sometimes we can do it on our own. But for those of us who have trouble accessing it on our own, and we know that about ourselves, we know it's all too easy for us to get pulled into a movement and pulled into our more base instincts. We need to find people around us. We need to find the kind of people, the teachers, the mentors, the friends, the family members that help remind us that we're actually not at war, don't need to be at war, and the war typically hasn't been created by those who are going to be fighting the war. It's created by the ones who are leading the war, but we're the ones who get injured. and. We need to make sure that we have those people in our lives who teach us how to sit down and have a conversation with someone who has an opposing view, with someone who knows that it's not worth having to win the argument, but rather more important just to have the conversation. And someone who knows and can teach people something I wish people learned at an early age, that it takes so much more strength and maturity and is so much more admirable to exhibit self-control than to take control of somebody else. Find yourself a mentor, find yourself a teacher, surround yourself with people who help to elevate the conversation and lower the temperature. Good luck to us all as we move into the future together. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.